Welcome to the Not Old Better Show author interview series on radio and podcast. I'm Paul Vogelzang. And today's show is brought to you by Shady Rays, Sunglasses, and Trivia Star, the number one trivia game in the Apple App Store. As part of our Art of Living author interview series, we have an excellent program about the wild tale of producing the Russian version of Sesame Street in the early to mid-1990s. Thank you so much for listening today. We have got a great guest today for our Art of Living Author interview series with Natasha Lance Rogoff, author of the new book, Muppets in Moscow. And I'll introduce her in just a moment. But quickly, if you missed any episodes, last week was our 704th episode when I spoke to Smithsonian Women's History Month series and Smithsonian Associate Emmy Award-winning filmmaker Sarah Lukinson about the magnificent Barbra Streisand. Two weeks ago, as part of our Smithsonian Associates Science Literacy Series, I spoke to scientist, journalist, and author Kelly Beatty. For the past 35 years, Kelly Beatty has kept his readers on the edge of their front row seats to much of the exploration of our solar system as senior editor of Sky and Telescope Magazine. Excellent subjects for our Not Old Better Show audience, especially during Women's History Month. If you miss those shows, along with any others, you can go back and check them out along with my entire back catalog of shows, all free for you there on our website, notold-better.com. After the collapse of the Soviet Union in the early 1990s, the timing appeared perfect to bring the venerable, longtime popular children's program Sesame Street to millions of children living in the former Soviet Union. With the Muppets envisioned as ideal ambassadors of Western idealistic values, no one anticipated just how challenging and dangerous this would prove to be. In 1993, the Sesame Workshop hired our guest today, Natasha Lance Rogoff, an American, to bring Sesame Street to Russia. The Muppets and Sesame Street are American cultural icons, and introducing them to Russia so soon after the collapse of communism would not be easy. In Muppets in Moscow, our guest today, Natasha Lance Rogoff, brings the story to life. Natasha Lance Rogoff, who is fluent in Russian, is an award-winning American television producer, filmmaker, and journalist who has produced television news and documentaries in Russia, Ukraine, and the former Soviet Union for CBS, NBC, ABC, and PBS. Natasha Lance Rogoff, executive produced Sesame Street, the Russian adaptation of the wonderful children's program between 1993 and 1997. So uh, I'm going to read from uh, Muppets in Moscow. This is from Chapter 4, and the title is The Oligarchs and the Muppets. Um, And this is a meeting with um, uh, Boris Berezovsky, who was a uh, rising oligarch at this time in uh, Moscow, who later became a uh, confidant and advisor to the Russian president, Boris Yeltsin. And this was a meeting that my colleague and I, uh, who is Russian, uh, his name is Leonid Zagalsky, who was a former um, journalist, um, had been trying to set up for months. And, you know, gosh, we, we thought if we could just get a meeting with this one um, oligarch who was controlling Russia's largest uh, television station, everything would be great. You know, he would he would agree to air our show and he would become a sponsor. 
And although we had some support uh, from the U.S. government through USAID, uh, which was appropriated um, with the help of then-Senator Joe Biden, uh, we needed to match the funding that was appropriated with Russian um, rubles. So this this was a meeting. Finally, we got this meeting. And so um, I'll just uh, begin here. We're meeting at um, a Japanese restaurant in Moscow. It's one of the first um, new restaurants after the Soviet empire had collapsed. After we are all seated, Berezovsky picks up the menu and studies it with intense concentration. His face, silhouetted by crimson light from red rice paper lanterns hanging over the table. I watch him decide what to eat, wondering what he'll decide about us. I try to catch Leonid's attention. That's my colleague. But he's too, he's also staring at the menu. His eyes are wide, probably shocked at the exorbitant prices. Sushi is almost $30 a piece here. I pray we won't have to pick up the tab, although I'm less worried about money than having to order translating Maguro tuna into Russian. Fortunately, there's no need. Both the waiter and Berezovsky speak excellent English. Soon, Leonid begins explaining, partly in Russian and partly in English, about Beekbird, an icon of American culture, as famous as Elvis Presley, launching into an impression of the Mississippi crooner. Leonid sucks in his cheeks, puckers his lips, and strums an air guitar for emphasis. I stare hard at him, willing him to stop, but he pays me no attention. Berezovsky barely acknowledges Leonid's impersonation of the king of rock and roll. Leonid wipes the sweat off his forehead with the back of his hand and abruptly stops his nervous laughter. In Russian, there's a proverb, laughing for no reason is a sign of stupidity which perfectly describes how he looks right now. I want to hide under the table. That, of course, is our guest today, Natasha Lance Rogoff, reading from her new book, Muppets in Moscow. Please join me in welcoming to the Not Old Better Show, Art of Living author interview series on radio and podcast, Natasha Lance Rogoff. Natasha Lance Rogoff, welcome to the program. Hello. It is great to speak with you. I'm excited to get into this. Your book, of course, Muppets in Moscow. Uh, it was just fascinating. Thank you for sharing it with me. And um, let me just start off by saying congratulations, because the book is amazing, and the research is incredible, and the story, I know, is going to be just uh, one our audience is just going to love. Well, that's very sweet of you. Thank you so much. <laughs> I'm delighted to be on the program. Well, thank you again. Let's start with kind of your arrival in Russia, the USSR, at, at, perhaps at the time. Tell us how you got there. What you, You're, of course, a, a documentary filmmaker, a journalist. You, you are a producer. You do an awful lot of things. But what brought you to Russia in that kind of that, that first, uh, you know, visit? Well, I had been studying Russian in college at um, Berkeley in California. And, um, you know, I, I went there to study Russian language. It was, you know, during the time, this was in the, the um, early 1980s, 1982, when it was the Soviet Union and, uh, you know, Ronald Reagan's evil empire. So uh, I, I wasn't a filmmaker when I went there, but I was by the time I left uh, because I had encountered um, 
you know, many underground uh, rock musicians and painters who were being persecuted. And, um, you know, there was, they weren't, didn't have the same freedoms as uh, many people had in, in the United States. And then, um, you know, became uh, acquainted with the LGBTQ uh, community in Leningrad at that time and wrote an expose about, uh, you know, uh, essentially gay life behind the Iron Curtain. Um, so, you know, it was it was absolutely thrilling to be there, um, you know, as an American to see an, an oppressive regime that was so different from ours, you know, economically, politically, ideologically, and to see it up close like that. So I, I I was very lucky, I felt, you know, to be there in, in the 1980s and see this. Yeah, thank you for that. And And you became very familiar with these musicians and artists, members of the LGBT community who were enduring extreme hardships because of, of censorship as well as just outright discrimination. And that led to your interest in working on a version of Sesame Street there. And so let's let's talk about that because how did how did that that's a pretty big jump uh, you know into children's programming and maybe just give us a little bit of the background about Sesame Street how how that came about at least there in in uh, in Russia how many seasons uh were there of Sesame Street there and your production team, some of the the specifics around that program, I think, are, are just fascinating because it it does tie back with this whole kind of censorship thing. It was a it was a big challenge to pull all this off, and what made you think you could do it? Even um, I would say absolute uh, stupidity, naivete. <laughs> I mean, I was, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, I mean, uh, you know, the jump that you're talking about is is literally ten years. So from the time I was a student in at Leningrad State University to the time that Sesame Street's uh, executives approached me to help them bring the Muppets to Moscow, that was 10 years. So in that time, I had been making, as you said, documentaries and uh, was a journalist and a TV producer for uh, NBC and um, had also, uh, you know, uh, completed a... Um, uh, a short uh, program at ABC, which was about underground rock and roll. I think it was it was called Rock Around the Kremlin with a friend, uh, Jackie Oakes. And um, anyway, it was, you know, it, I totally, you know, did not expect to be making children's television. I was making serious films about, you know, political issues and uh, was pretty passionate about, um you know, how, how, how it's possible to use media to support these artists and also um, encourage freedom of expression within the country, within uh, what was then the Soviet Union. Um, but, uh, you know, Sesame Street asked me to help them and they, they came to a screening of the, the last documentary film I had worked on, which was called Russia for Sale. And this was a film where I, I had embedded myself with hardline conservatives who would, would, were willing to do anything to prevent the Soviet Union from imploding. And the end of the film predicted the coup 
which happened in 1991. So the night of the coup, uh, 20 minutes from that film was on Nightline with Ted Koppel, as as was I. And, um, you know, I asked the Sesame Street executives, you just watched this, you know, film. <laughs> what makes you think I could possibly help you with the Muppets? You know, I don't know anything about children. I'm not a children's TV producer. And, um, you know, there there was uh, actually uh, Gary Nell, who was the former uh, head of Nat Geo uh, much later. Um, you know, he he just said uh, to me, uh, you know, come on, come on, Natasha. No one can say no to Elmo. So I went down to the studio and, you know, it was incredible. It was so uh, there were so many um you know, earnest young people. They, I, I was at this point, uh, you know, just 30 something. And so um, I just really admired what they were doing, um, both, you know, in the United States addressing, um, uh, you know, race, race issues, and as well as what Sesame Workshop, then called Children's Television Workshop, was doing internationally, um, you know, promoting, um, uh, values that um, were really important to helping children develop and thrive in an open society. So the prospect of working on this show and, you know, having the Muppets be the same type of ambassadors in post-communist, uh, you know, USSR uh, was really something that intrigued me. Um, but I, I obviously, you know, really underestimated the challenges. Um, it was a very different country after um, after the collapse. Uh, and uh, it was way more chaotic, um, you know, economically challenging. And the prospect of producing 52 half hours of television at that time in the 1990s, you know, was a, was a, a recipe for um, insanity. And and it was a crazy ride, which is why I wanted to write the book. You know, I just thought this is, it, it took me 30 years to write this book. I mean, not that I worked on it for 30 years, but I wanted to write it, you know, when the show finished. I thought the story was so remarkable that, um, and it, and it, it taught me so much about the Russian people, their culture, their values, because there's nothing more intimate than, uh, you know, when children talk about their children and, and their hopes for their children in the future. So it was a very different scenario than making a documentary film where you're kind of on the outside of things and you're an observer and you're, you know, I'm trying to make a film that's unbiased. And in a lot of ways, you know, this, this situation making this show with over 400, you know, artists from Moscow, from Russia, Ukraine, Georgia, Armenia, uh, this was, this was something way out of my comfort zone. <laughs> Let me put it that way. So 400 worked on it. So it doesn't sound like you really ran into issues with finding sufficient numbers of artistic and creative staff, what other hoops presented themselves that you kind of didn't expect? Because maybe once you had the staffing and the artistic and creativity kind of side of it in place, and, and maybe tell me if I'm wrong about that, what other 
you know, issues cropped up that you just didn't anticipate with just creating a program like this? Well, it's not like, you know, it's not like, uh, you know, in the United States where you, Mm -hmm. you know, post some ads on the internet (laughs) and you assemble a team that way. I mean, first of all, there was no, no use of computers uh, at the time we were doing this. um, And there were no cell phones. So there were satellite phones, but, you know, they were expensive. Um, But, uh, you know, part of my wanting to work on this show uh, was also um, that I wanted to give opportunities to independent artists, people who were not part of the uh, state television apparatus. The idea was that we could build a team which would include uh, television professionals from the state but they would be working side by side with independent artists who had not been, you know, allowed entry into, uh, you know, creating content for television in the past. So the, so the idea of building this team was, you know, it, it took months and months and months and it was not easy. I mean, that was, that was one of the hardest, uh, you know, aspects was to, create a team that where everybody, you know, would be working together. But there was also, you know, you know, in addition to uh, this team working together, there was a great deal of violence, you know, outside the studio and inside the studio, the television station, uh, you know, was taken over in, in 1993. And our office was then uh, taken over by soldiers with AK 47s at one point, when um, uh, there were uh, uh, battles to control the hearts and minds of uh, the um, the people across 11 time zones, you know, millions of people in a country that represented one seventh of the Earth's surface. So this violence, I mean, this included many of our um, people that we were had become close to who were confidants and trying to help us get the show broadcast on Russia's largest television station, including Vlad Listev, who was a great man who was bringing uh, press freedom to, to Russia at the time. And he was gunned down in front of his house after he, he left the uh, TV station. And then, then you know, uh, about nine months later, the next head of the TV station uh, was also assassinated. So these were some of the challenges that I write about in the book that were completely unexpected. You know, you're doing a children's TV show with puppets. The last thing you think, you know, you're going to be dealing with is, you know, the loss of um, of people who, you know, you've come to depend on to um, advise and help you. Um, but there were also enormous cultural clashes in the development of the show itself. And this is not you know, unusual um, because, uh, you know, each uh, each Sesame Street International co-production is developed to reflect the culture and values of that society. So, you know, when you bring Sesame Street, you know, to Russia as a format, a show format, you're basically dealing with, you know, uh, Sesame Street's uh, progressive values bumping up against, you know, 400 years of Russian thought. So we, we encountered uh, many issues that, that had to do with, um, you know, uh, 
different views, even even in terms of the design of the Muppets themselves. You know, in term when we first showed the uh, Sesame Street clips to the creative team, they didn't like the Muppets, and they didn't li- they didn't they said those don't look like our puppets, and you know we. We uh, want to use our puppets, which are, you know, usually marionette style wooden, uh, you know, often with kind of exaggerated features and um, the, the, you know, the foam or fur puppets that, that were made by Jim Henson. They, they thought, you know, we, uh, we don't want those and we don't need them. <laughs> so that, that whole Muppet debate went on for months. And eventually, you know, they came to their own decision and they created Muppets, but they were uniquely Russian in style, aesthetics, you know, if you saw them, you would be like, oh, my goodness, these look so amazing. I write about that in the book, too, because there's, uh, you know, many, many issues. And the same thing was true of the script writing, you know, when we um, were trying to develop scripts. Uh, you know, there was a, a quite quite a difference in terms of the initial scripts they wrote, which were often, you know, very depressing uh, or escapist or wildly abstract. Some of the writers turned in scripts that were 10 pages long, you know, for a short comedy bit. Um, and they were beautifully written. The, the writers were really talented. Um but it wasn't the right kind of writing for a Sesame Street style comedy show. Hey, it's Paul. You know, it's starting to get really nice here. The weather is getting warmer and my wife and I are out and about walking our neighborhood trails as we do every year. Every year, it seems, I misplace my sunglasses as soon as the weather turns. The sun comes out. And I'm shopping for new sunglasses. Seems like I lose a pair every year and right about this time when I start to really need them. I wear contact lenses and my eyes are sensitive to sunlight, making sunglasses an essential item for me. Essential, yes, but I don't seem to keep track of them very well. And buying new sunglasses each year is a must. So I hate to overpay, but I need quality sun protection with polarized lenses. This obviously has been a pocketbook shocker, <laughs> a pocketbook buster <laughs> every year, at least until I began getting Shady Rays sunglasses. Shady Rays makes high quality sunglasses that are just as good, or in my opinion, even better than expensive ones. And Shady Rays are a fraction of the cost. I bought my first pair a year ago. Then Shady Rays became a sponsor of the show, making it very easy and genuine for me to talk about all the things I love about Shady Rays. I've owned many different brands, and I know you know all the names, but remember Shady Rays' name because the quality is as good, if not better, than even some of these more expensive sunglasses that you might have owned. The frames are durable. The vision clarity is amazing, especially for me in my contacts requiring the Shady Rays polarized lenses, which are awesome. Plus, for those of us who are, like me and Gretchen, style conscious on our outdoor adventures, they look fantastic. Plus, every pair of Shady Rays is backed by their industry-leading lost and broken replacement program. Break or lose your pair, 
The second you take them out of the box, they'll send you a replacement pair free. And something else I really love about Shady Rays, with every order, the Shady Rays Impact Program works with nonprofits worldwide to make an impact on the lives of children and young adults, like building play sets for pediatric cancer patients and creating adventures for young adults with cancer and MS. You and Shady Rays are making an impact together. I love that. What's better than getting one pair of Shady Rays and not worrying if you break or lose them? getting two pair. Go to the shadyrays.com slash N-O-B site and use the code N-O-B. And for a limited time, when you buy one pair of Shady Rays, you'll get a second pair free. That's Shady Rays, S-H-A-D-Y-R-A-Y-S.com slash N-O-B. All of this will be in the show notes, but you use the code N-O-B to get a second pair of Shady Rays sunglasses free. ShadyRays.com slash N-O-B, code N-O-B for your sunglasses needs. Check them out. You're going to love them. Thanks, everybody. Our guest today is Natasha Lance Rogoff. Natasha Lance Rogoff has written the wonderful book, Muppets in Moscow, The Unexpected Crazy True Story of Making Sesame Street in Russia. The book is really getting great praise. I just enjoyed it. I found uh, critic Robert Legvold who said, Muppets in Moscow is sheer fun, but with remarkable and deep insights into the tumult that was Russia a half decade after the collapse of the Soviet Union. This story intimately told through the daily conversations and battles that Lance Rogoff had with all involved conveys as well as any book, the detail and texture of the tension between the old and the new. And so as you were talking, well, first of all, as I was reading the book, I thought, you know, I thought of Punch and Judy type puppets, the marionette style. And then I thought too about just emotions like conveying happiness and sadness that for Russians might be very different than for those of us in the United States. And so how did, how did you kind of get around some of that? Were there just endless meetings to kind of arrive at a middle ground for some of just some basic emotional script writing uh, kind of sentiment? That, that's a really good question. I mean, the humor in the Russian Sesame Street show is quite different from the American show. Uh, For instance, uh, slapstick humor was really not that popular. The humor was more dependent on wordplay, for instance. And many of the writers would describe their comedy as, uh, which I loved, was, you know, laughing between tears. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, the there, it was very um, challenging in the beginning for um, for the writers, and some of them said they they were having a great deal of difficulty writing upbeat scripts because they wanted to be true to the reality that children were experience, experiencing in post Soviet society, and and they didn't want they felt it was ingenuous, you know, to um, uh, to present society, you know, in another way. They wanted the writing to be grounded in reality. And life was very difficult there for people, you know, in terms of getting food, caring for their loved ones, in terms of health care, uh, making a living. You know, this was a period of sheer chaos as the uh, Soviet Union was um, uh, becoming dismembered and the different parts of what was formerly a united country 
uh, were were splitting off and becoming independent countries like Ukraine, Armenia, Georgia. So, you know, the writers had to find a way to be true to themselves uh, and not what they called whitewash, you know, reality. Um, and, and this also was evident in, you know, the way the uh, the writers addressed, for instance, one of the goals was to teach happy versus sad, you know, to convey this this idea to children in a storyboard. And um, one of my favorite uh, scripts was uh, depicts a little boy and a little girl who are holding, they're each holding their own, his, his or her, you know, own balloon. And then um, the little boy lets go of his balloon by accident and he starts crying and he looks, you know, very sad. Little girl looks at him and she lets go of her balloon. And then the two of them hold hands as they watch the two balloons go up into the sky together. And when I read this in a storyboard format, I was like, why did, why did they, why did, why don't they just share the one balloon? Like, why am I like a boat balloon, you know? And then the, you know, the writers were laughing at me and they were like, no, there, this is a moment of, you know, happiness and they're appreciating the beauty together, you know, of, of essentially having nothing. But I just, I thought that was so poignantly Russian and what a great segment, you know, that captures, um, very the, sweet you know, beauty over consumerism essentially, you know, um, but there was another one too with the um, uh, that I write about in the book, uh, which was utterly shocking to me, and it had to do with the auditions when children were auditioning for the show. Um, so I hope people will get the book and read that one because that that's an incredible story. Hey, Paul here. We'll be right back with our guest Natasha Lance Rogoff. But I mentioned our sponsor today, Trivia Star. They're the number one trivia game in the Apple App Store. You know, as audience of the Not Old Better show, I know you, like me, enjoy trivia. Music trivia, movie trivia, author trivia, geography, all kinds of trivia. I'll tell you something. I met my wife, Gretchen, playing trivia against her mom and brother. True story. We love trivia here. If I were to ask you to name a song by Dolly Parton or Queen, could you answer? In under 15 seconds, if the answer is yes, then you need to play Trivia Star. If I were to ask you the name of a member of the Beatles or the new kids on the block, could you answer in 15 seconds? Definitely, in member of the Beatles, we could. But again, if the answer is yes, then you need to play Trivia Star. Do you know the capital of Colorado? How about the country of origin for kebabs? Play Trivia Star now and prove your knowledge. Trivia Star is a free mobile trivia game with over 60 different categories, but you get to choose from all of those categories, amongst them including music, TV, animals, and celebrities. If you choose the right answer from multiple choices and you beat the clock, you move on to the next level. It sounds simple, but the questions get harder over time, but if you get stuck, don't worry. You can use coins and gems to get hints and beat the level. If you love trivia like I do, you will love Trivia Star. 
Right now, Trivia Star is offering you 2,500 coins and 500 gems when you download and play today. I love the pace of Trivia Star. It's great. That 15-second clock is amazing, as well as all of the categories and options. It's a great game to build my brain cells. Trivia Star has thousands of five-star reviews in the Apple Store, and it is the number one trivia game on the App Store. Download it today to challenge yourself. Just go to Apple or Google Store and search for Trivia Star. All of this will be in our show notes, but download Trivia Star for free today and get ready to flex your brain muscles. Thanks, everybody. Yeah, I want to encourage our audience to pick this book up again. Natasha Lance Rogoff has written a great book called Muppets in Moscow. We'll have links so that our audience can find out more information about Natasha Lance Rogoff, as well as her documentaries. She's mentioned Rock Around the Kremlin, Russia for Sale, and of course her book, Muppets in Moscow. We'll put links up so that our audience can find all of that information. You, you've generously read today to us a, a section from Chapter 4 uh, entitled The um, the Oligarchs and the Muppets, which I found just a fascinating chapter. Maybe dive in a little deeper on that subject of the oligarchs and the Muppets, because this was, I, I can't imagine that the oligarchs really enjoyed being called oligarchs. I don't know, was that a term of, of the time or is that a term that we now associate later with the, the dissolution of the the Soviet Union and, and, and face it now? And, and maybe tell us a little bit more about... Uh, about the money that you needed to to raise from this particular oligarch, we uh, we had to raise uh, quite a bit of money for this. And as I mentioned earlier, we there was some money appropriated by the United States Congress, uh, you know, for a Russian version of Sesame Street, an original show. And um, but we but we it was very difficult to find the financing. It actually took the whole process took about five years. Uh, so that's that, you know, the first the whole first part of the book, you know, looks at how money was raised for the show. And there's you get to visit with, uh, uh, you know, uh, an oligarch who has a shark tank in his office and many other, you know, really <laughs> comical, uh, you know, meetings with various um, mm -hmm. new, mm -hmm. new and rising oligarchs. The first term. Uh, before oligarch existed was just like businessmen, you know, because business, independent commerce was illegal uh -huh. under mm -hmm. communism. So then, you know, the term oligarch started being used uh, quite a bit later. Um, but, uh, you know, we we um, we were able to uh, essentially meet with various people. And it wasn't until, you know, I'd say uh, year year four, when, um, when we found our golden goose, who was one of the few women, uh, who ran a, uh, a, um, an advertising company, advertising had been legalized only recently, a few years before. So if you can imagine a society where there were no commercials, you know, what was, what was considered advertising <laughs> in the Soviet Union then was like, you know, ads about the great and glorious proletariat or, you know, the the uh, a day in the life of a tractor. <laughs> Scintillating stuff. <laughs> so, yeah. so this was a game yeah. changer. Yeah. 
Um, yeah. So I think, uh, you know, it was, it was, uh, quite, quite a tough haul to, to get to the point where we could, um, where we had financing, but then, you know, this financing was jeopardized continuously during the course of the, of the show, uh, because of what was going on in Russia at that time. Natasha, we think of ratings here in the United States, and and I wonder if, Russia has a similar system. Do they have a ratings system for TV productions? And maybe you can tell us how popular the program was in uh, in, in Russia in the USSR. The the your your version of Sesame Street there. Well, the you know the show aired uh, just a couple years after the Soviet Union collapsed. So, you know, at that time uh, they had a rating system because they had advertising. And they needed a way, um, you know, to determine the price of advertising. But it wasn't a very sophisticated system. Eventually, Nielsen came in, and there was a Nielsen rating system in Russia. Um, I'm not sure exactly how it is today. um, But, you know, at the time that that the TV industry was just opening up and, and advertising became legal as opposed to you know, there was none under this, you know, when it was the Soviet Union, um, the um, the television stations were so minimal. So they didn't have uh, the the breadth of cable stations that we had in the U.S., um, you know, in the early 1990s. That's when Nickelodeon was was ramping up and, um, you know, CNN. I mean, we they had um, a few cable stations but they were extremely small. Their footprint was also small. And yet the two major TV stations in, um, in, the, in what was then post-Soviet society, so uh, you know, the, the signal would transmit across 11 time zones, the penetration was like 98%. So, I mean, it, it's and, and and if you look at the numbers today, as far as uh, you know what what um, most Russians have access to. Uh, once again, after Putin, uh, you know, limited the access to alternative sources of of uh, news, current affairs, and film television shut down netflix you know i mean netflix left uh um you know there's no access you you can get some access with vpn but that's expensive to pay for so once again we're back to this situation where again if you you know want to get any news or anything you're going to have to go to those russian state-owned channels and the penetration is once again very high that said do i think people are actually watching it and expecting that they're getting accurate news. Many people don't. Yeah, we just think of Russia, the USSR, of course, as um, such a repressive society. And one that I I would think, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but is heavily male-centric. And and I wonder, uh, and this is a question, of course, we're celebrating uh, Women's History Month this March and and uh, talking to you uh, during March. I wonder what it was like to be a, a female producer. You were you were the executive producer for the Russian adaptation of Sesame Street. What was that like? Were you among 
uh, just a handful of women? Was it, you know, almost balanced men and women? How how were you received and how what what barriers of entry did you encounter in in rising to that role? Well, I should preface that with saying that um, most job advertisements in newspapers in, um, you know, during those years in the uh, early 1990s, you know, they would have they would the writing would have adjectives like attractive secretary needed, <laughs> you know, and it was, you know, women went generally, you know, uh, wore a skirt or a dress, you know, it was, it was still quite conservative. And um, at the same time, you know, the, the Soviet Union had very progressive uh, policies that we didn't have in the West. So, you know, uh, the right to abortion was universal in the Soviet Union. And there were many other aspects that, you know, where there were intense contradictions. And um, women worked in uh, as engineers. Many were doctors. Uh, They were paid less than men in, in what was then the Soviet Union and in the early years after the Soviet empire collapsed. And my, my women colleagues used to joke that, uh, you know, women were given the freedom to work work more than men. <laughs> and I used to love that they because we, you know, we always talked about how they were primarily handling all the cooking and the laundry. And and that became um a topic of discussion for uh you know this several days when we were developing the personalities for the Muppet, the female Muppet character as well as the um the women characters uh that were that were human actors on the set who would be interacting with the puppets you know in the new neighborhood that that was constructed and there was a real generational um battle between the younger uh female um writers and the uh the older um the older writers mostly male who, um, you know, wanted to have traditional stereotypes preserved, Russian traditional stereotypes. And eventually the show really uh, broke those stereotypes and created a very, um, uh, you know, innovative uh, characters with that, that, um, that challenged uh, the current reality. Um, but there's, you know, something that that um, really attracted me to uh, becoming the executive producer. Um, I, I was very aware of the, um, the sexism that I had faced in the TV industry in the 1980s in television and, you know, various, uh, you know, this is at major networks where I had, you know, different, uh, you know, I, I, I always had a male boss and had to deal with all kinds of things. Um, and as I speak with uh, colleagues of mine today who are uh, very established um, uh, in the industry, that you know, we sit down and we find we all face similar, uh, you know, uh, you know, terrible things that happened as we were trying to do basically do our job as TV producers. So when I got the chance to set up the team in Moscow and um, Sesame Street, you know, uh, you know, tasked me with this, this really challenging project. I thought, 
well, you know, I, I could I could just hire a lot of women, and that's exactly what we did. So, fifty uh, percent of our team uh, was were you know was made up of women, and women were in the primary um, key uh, technical positions as directors. Um, the set designer was a woman. My partner uh, in um, our co-production partner uh, was a one of the um, most successful women in in uh, uh, Moscow who ran her own advertising and production company. And my colleagues couldn't believe it. You know, the women would come up to me and they just they were so thrilled at this, uh, you know, absolutely bizarre a team that we had assembled from their perspective because there were just so many women in in powerful positions and um and that's something that I'm you know incredibly proud of that that we did that and that it also you know became such a successful show mm-hmm. yes well congratulations on on all of that the the new book muppets in moscow is wonderful your other work, you've received a lot of great attention for it, too. You wrote an early expose of gay life behind the Iron Curtain for the San Francisco Chronicle. And then you did a film titled Rock Around the Kremlin featuring banned Soviet rock and roll artists, which I thought was interesting because you later, later recruited some of them to compose original music for Sesame Street. That, that was a great, a great step on your part, too, and kind of bringing all, this all together, despite all of these contradictions, as you, you reference them, what kind of impact did the Soviet people, the Russian people have on you and your view of the world today, given all that we're facing um, internationally? Well, I, I, I just want to mention, I, I worked on that film, the, uh, uh, the Rock Around the Kremlin. We, we made that for ABC television. That was with Jackie Oakes as well. And um, as far as the, um, you know, the LGBT community, um, what I think about today is, you know, where we are today versus where we, you know, where we were 30 years ago. And this is especially, uh, you know, heartbreaking in light of the, um, you know, criminalization of, uh, you know, any, any public promotion of LGBTQ rights in Russia today. Um, and this, you know, when we were making Sesame Street, um, this also was a period of, you know, just slight opening up regarding um, some of these questions. Because when I was writing about it in the 1980s, people would actually, uh, you know, be um, blackmailed by the KGB uh, to, you know, regarding um, to, you know, their their uh, sexual identity, and um, some were imprisoned. So it was not, you know, we were we were moving at a kind of glacial space, uh, you know, uh, uh, pace in terms of opening up for some of these issues, whereas other of, of the um, issues related to uh, inclusivity, um, uh, acceptance of a free market, um, uh, uh, you know, diversity, you know, things like that. They they were moving at a different pace. But you know, as far as how it affected me personally, I mean, you know, I over this this period of 
five years uh, when I went back to Russia. You know, I was I was not a documentary filmmaker, but you know, was was working side by side with uh, artists uh, living in Moscow. You know, who were Russian, Ukrainian, Armenian, all together. And, you know, seeing the passion with which they worked and their the resilience uh, that they that they um, expressed, you know, in light of all these tremendous obstacles we had, people getting killed and um, running out of money and all kinds of uh, challenges that that they were able to, uh, you know, stay the course and make this children's show because they, they imagined that they could change their country, you know, that they could change the future for their children and for Russia. And I, I, you know, in seeing that, I think it also changed me because I was able to both recognize the ways in which we were different, that we had different uh, historical experiences and also different values in in many ways. But in seeing how they were able to take so many risks, I think it also uh, taught me about what was important in life as I moved forward. And, you know, this eventually led to my, uh, you know, meeting my husband, getting married, having a child, and I'm not sure if I hadn't gone through that experience with my colleagues, um, a very difficult experience um, that required us to depend on each other, um, if I would have been able to get to that place, uh, you know, emotionally. So I think this, you know, experience uh, really affected me in in in, in those ways that um you know uh, personally and then on a larger scale you know seeing the impact that the show had on um creating uh greater um openness equality and um addressing issues of social justice um you know i ended up spending the rest of my life working in that same space so also in, impacted my life in that way, too. A wonderful story. Um, thank you so much for being our guest and generously um, talking about, about your new book, Muppets in Moscow, and the rest of your career. I imagine that your work at Harvard, you're a fellow there, is just uh, um, very inspiring for students and for uh, uh, all those who are around because it, it mirrors some of what you did with uh, Sesame Street, the teaching young viewers, the skills that, you know, we all need. And uh, I certainly appreciate um, this work and all your research into this book and your spending time with us. Thank you so much, Natasha. We appreciate your time and best to you. Best, best to you too. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. My thanks to Shady Ray's Sunglasses and Trivia Star, the number one trivia game in the Apple App Store for sponsoring today's show. My thanks to Natasha Lance Rogoff for her generous time in reading. My thanks to the Smithsonian team for all they do to support the show. And of course, my thanks to you, my wonderful Not Old Better show audience. Please be well and be safe. Let's talk about better. The Not Old Better show, art of living, author, programming, 
on the Not Old Better Show for radio and podcast. Thanks, everybody, and we will see you next time.